from my perspective, from what I have seen, I would warn all employers and HR professionals that when we get back to the new normal, there's not going to be anything normal about that. And that is because everybody has been home and had this opportunity to reevaluate what is important in their life. And overwhelmingly, I'm hearing people value more the things that they've been overlooking in pursuit of career success, you know, family and those relationships within their life, some of their hobbies and passions. And so HR and leadership are going to really have to step it up because they're going to have to offer meaning and purpose more than ever at work again. Welcome to the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO and founder of JGA Recruitment, specialist HR recruiters. Tuning into the HR L&D podcast will help you to discover strategic growth concepts, leadership development strategies, and the values and behaviors that drive organizational change and success. Together, let's empower our workforces diversify our thinking and achieve significant HR success. Hello and welcome back to the HR L&D podcast. Today I'm joined by David Shah, who's the founder of Illuminate PMC. He's a keynote speaker, consultant and trainer who specialises in helping organisations improve their leadership and culture and combat burnout. And burnout is something we're going to talk about throughout this podcast and we're going to find out exactly what burnout is and how we can design more meaningful work. David holds a bachelor's in human resources management from Colorado State University, a master's in industrial organizational psychology from the University of Maryland. Right now he's studying for his doctorate in business psychology at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. David is not your typical academic, so stay tuned. Let's find out more about employee burnout. Let's find out more about the future of meaningful work. Welcome to the show, David. Amazing to have you here. I'm going to jump straight in with that question about employee burnout because we're, you know, we're going through a pandemic at the minute. A lot of people are feeling burnt out at the moment, working extra hours, working from home and dealing with the pressure. So can you tell our listeners a little bit more about what burnout is and what causes it? Yeah, first of all, Nick, thank you so much for having me on here. It's uh, really an honor to be able to speak with you and your audience. So Burnout is incredibly relevant now. You know, it was already a growing phenomenon, both growing and expanding, growing in terms of um, getting worse in terms of the amount of people burning out and the severity of burnout, but also broadening beyond the initial. It used to be very concentrated into very specific industries like the helping professions. You know, when you think about nursing or teachers or social workers, those people were always burning out, but now you're seeing burnout in all sorts of industries, and especially now in 2020. And the main three elements of burnout is uh, this feeling of emotional exhaustion. So it's not really a physical exhaustion, except often, very often, it leads to physical exhaustion and then can even lead to psychosomatic illnesses. So uh, there's that emotional exhaustion piece. And then there's the second piece, which is like this overall feeling of cynicism. And then the final piece is a decrease in a sense of personal accomplishment. So when you look at the world right now, I think we can all agree that at some point over the past six months or so, we have felt emotionally exhausted 
We are probably very cynical about a lot of things right now. And we also oftentimes are feeling like we're churning our wheels twice as fast and getting half as much done because we're, you know, at home with our kids and trying to work from home there or because your entire business model has changed. You know, we've all been impacted by this. Sure. You're absolutely right. I work in recruitment. So we hear the term employee burnout a lot. We get consultants that feel like they've just had enough of, of that burnout being on the phone. But actually for our, for our listeners, for the HR professionals out there, this pandemic in particular has really brought some of those things you mentioned there to the surface. You picked up on one point, which is something that I sometimes struggle with, which is when you've got no one else really saying you've done a job well done, and I probably have it more as a business owner than an employee, sometimes you can feel a little bit lost. Um, and I think when you're working from home, that can be exacerbated. So if that's just one feeling that you, you picked up on, I'm sure there are many others. But what can organisations do to fix employee burnout, particularly when it's so hard when you're working from home to even leave your laptop? Or I don't know, what are some of the things you would suggest? Yeah, so there's a bunch of different models on um, burnout. I have my own model called the FTF Burnout Proof Culture Model, which really takes this very broad look at burnout and all of the different elements from selection through training and development and the how you're building the culture within your organization, et cetera. But to keep it real simplistic right now, one of my favorite models is the demand control support model, which argues that when demand goes up within somebody's position within the organization, so there's this increase in demand, simultaneously, their sense of control decreases and their sense of uh, social support, both from coworkers and supervisors decreases, that's like the highway to burnout. So that's really significant because right now we see demand. So when, when we talk about demand and often historically the research, when it talked about demand, it was talking about time pressure and work-life balance and things like that. And those are certainly um, some things that we're, we're often struggling with now. But demand, when we really look at it, you, when you ask somebody, uh, you ask a bartender on a busy Friday night and they're slinging drinks and, you know, it's, it's all chaos and they're in the midst of all of this. If you ask them in that moment, do they feel burnt out? Oftentimes they'll tell you the exact opposite. They'll say, no, I feel completely energized. I hit flow in that moment. And I think that we can all relate to that, that when work gets busy, we don't always burn out. Sometimes it feels great. So what is it that's causing the burnout? I would argue that it's this element of all of the things standing in the way of doing the job that you are there to do. So you signed on to this job, to this profession, et cetera, because you wanted to make some sort of difference. You wanted to have some sort of impact. And then layers of bureaucracy and interpersonal conflict and all of these things start standing in the way of you getting the work done that you want to get done. So number one, uh, what managers should be doing during 2020 and work from home and when we get back into the offices and normal life, if that, if that day will ever come, is to ensure that they are lowering any barriers. They really need to be servant leaders that are out there making your job as easy as possible in the sense that they are removing barriers that stand in the way of you doing the job that you are there to do, that you're paid to do, that you're passionate about doing, um, whatever that is at the core of, of your job. Sure. Now, that, you put that really clear. I'm a visual learner, so I've, I've created images in my head, and that, that makes sense to me. I like, you position that perfectly in my mind. So, okay, 
I now understand what, what employee burnout is, but how can I discover if my, particularly in recruitment, right, how can I discover if my employees are burnt out? What are, what are kind of the, the steps that I can take to fix it? And, and how do I know if my company even has a burnout problem? So I guess there's two things that I see a lot when people call me and they're thinking they have a burnout problem. And more often than not, they're, they're correct. What you start seeing is high turnover rates. And you also see more interpersonal conflict and lack of engagement. Oftentimes, burnout is even described as the opposite of employee engagement. So you see people withdrawing from the job, uh, doing the bare minimum, being very cynical. And so when you start seeing these things, and it's really interesting because burnout is very contagious, which begs the question, um, so often what we do is we call the expert and they come in and what do they do? If you've dealt with a speaker, consultant, helping you with burnout, most of the time, your experience is probably somebody coming in and holding a resilience training. Right. So we're going to teach everybody to toughen up. You know what? I've got I a question have, I, here. I was gonna, I'm, inter- I'm interjecting and apologies because I have on my list here, you know, I'm just thinking in my mind, well, then would a good option for me be to introduce resilience training? So you beat me to the punch. It was going to be something I was going to ask you. So tell me more about why that wouldn't be the best course. Right. So I am a little bit ethically opposed to going straight to resilience training. And also, when we look at more practically and and we look at the bottom line, it doesn't make so much sense to me. So resilience is half of the picture. So I'm not going to discount the importance of resilience. And especially in 2020, because so much happened that was out of our control with the pandemic and all of the things that seem to be popping up this year. So in those situations, life is not always going to be easy. Life is not always going to go your way. It is going to be stressful, and therefore resilience is important. However, why do organizations typically go there first instead of investigating and saying, hmm, we have a ton of stress within our organization? Because like I said, this stuff, it spreads like wildfire, right? So it's very contagious burnout. So is it contagious because one person's burnout and they rub off on somebody else? Or more likely, is it contagious because it doesn't exist in the individuals, it exists in the environment, the levels of stress in the leadership and culture of the organization? So I said that I have a problem with it ethically as well. It's almost like victim blaming. It's it's saying, all right, we're getting the message. We're abusing you guys. Uh, but don't worry, we're here to teach you how to take it, you know, instead of, uh, you know, holding up and stop throwing punches, you're, you're teaching them how to take a punch. So what can you do? You can go back to your vision, back to the values, really connect things to that. You can create um, networks of social support so that employees are able to support each other. That coworker support is so important, both emotional and in a more tactful sort of way, in a more you know resourceful sort of way. People want information, they want emotional support, and they want actual support. Like, can you help me with this job for a second? You know, a nurse might need somebody to help them run a patient to another, you know, to get an x-ray, et cetera. We need all those types of support. We need them from supervisors and from each other, for our, from our coworkers. And finally, we need that control piece where, People have autonomy and not just autonomy, but decision authority. Um, It's not just, all right, do this task and you you can do it how you want to do it. It's more, should we do this task? What task do you think would be most appropriate right now? 
your frontline workers rarely are given these opportunities to make decisions, while in reality, they have a better view of the organization in a lot of ways than those in the C-suite, because they're right there. They are on the front lines and have answers that sometimes we don't give them credit for. So tapping into that is so valuable for so many reasons. One of the many reasons is that it decreases the chances of burnout by giving them a sense of control. Sure, sure. And you mentioned in that in that response as well, you know, attrition. And for the HR professionals listening to this, they're going to know that attrition is expensive. Uh, whether they come to me or yeah. somewhere else, you know, to replace staff, to when you've got, you know, high turnover rates as a result of burnout, it's, it's going to impact a business. You're going to lose top talent. Uh, it's going to flood out of your business and it's going to be expensive to, to replace it. So, that can, can still be a difficult thing to prevent, though, if people aren't enjoying their work or particularly if they're doing what they may consider a mundane task. Now, we've got a lot of automation coming in that's, that's taking some of the mundane tasks away from people's jobs, which is good, but they still exist. So what would you advise people did or HR directors do for their workforces to help them find meaning in their work, particularly if the, the job at hand is a little bit more, for want of a better word, mundane? Right. Great question. So I like to think that every business um, serves a purpose, right? I mean, otherwise they wouldn't be in business. If there, if there wasn't a need, they wouldn't be in business. So the question is, are you bringing people in to begin with? And this is, this is your piece, right? How do you recruit people to make sure that there is a job fit, but also an organization person fit in terms of do these people fit the core values? Are they looking for the same things out of their work? So I know it sounds like a bad joke, but one, one week I decided I'm going to fill my calendar. I met separately with a priest, a pastor, a rabbi, and an imam. And I asked each of them, I said, what's the purpose, right? Because we have this concept of work as a calling, um, which actually originates from the, from the church. Uh, but even more so, we have this whole branch of research now into meaningful work, et cetera. So what is meaningful work? Well, what is meaning? What is purpose? It, it needs to be, it needs to connect. So what all of these clergy told me was, you know, across the board, they were, they were fairly clear that we all have like our individual role to play in a larger mission. And that, you know, it's almost like, uh, one body, but that somebody's got to be the brain and somebody's got to be the heart. You don't want to put the heart in the brain's job or the brain in the heart's job. There needs to be that fit. But only when we come together, in this case, as an organization, are we able to magnify the impact that we can have on the broader world around us, right? And so I, I think that we've lost sight of what work is really all about because we've made it about the dollars and cents, we've made it about the about the paycheck. And so what happens is we go to work every day, we lose sight of the of the values of the organization, of the mission of the organization, and of what we view as our personal mission. We lose sight of that. And as we clock into work, we clock out of life. We become like a different identity when we go to work. And so we put all of our stuff all of our all of our aspirations besides for the professional ones we put them all on hold and then what happens is we get off of work and we go home and we have just been unplugged from our own value system and so 
we need to cope with this. So we drug ourselves. And sometimes it's illicit drugs and sometimes it's alcohol and sometimes it's television and sometimes it's just going to sleep. Right. And we do whatever we need to do to just it, it, when you look at it from, you know, uh, you know, from 10,000 feet, it really just looks like when we get home from work, we are coping. We are just trying to get through the day to do it all again. And what is that for? For the weekend? For the holiday that will come up eventually? Like, is that what it's all for? So as leaders, I think it's so important to always be making that connection because everything that you do at work should be linked to that. You know, Simon Sinek calls it the why, right? It should be linked to, to your employees' why, to your company's purpose. And that, that link needs to be made evident. And by the way, if you can't find the link, then what the hell are you doing that work for anyway? What, like, then that means that task is meaningless. You know, so, so the task might be mundane, but if you're doing it in order to get the work done and fulfill the mission of the organization, then it could be mundane, but it's not trivial. And I think that that connection needs to be made and, and it needs to be illustrated by management. It's a really good distinction. I, I had a bit of a, a smirk on my face when you were talking about some of your examples there, because I'm definitely someone who at the end of work and people that know me in this sector will know that I like a glass of wine when I get home. But it's, uh, you know, you, you've referenced half our nation here. There must be nearly half of my listeners, if not more, must be listening going, you know what, that's exactly what I do when I get home. But I, I love the connection to the values. I think that's really, really important. I do think a lot of businesses, certainly here in the UK, need to reflect on the values they've got because sometimes they were written years ago and they haven't evolved with them. So the values that they have and the people are living now don't really reflect the values that are necessarily on the wall. So I think I think it's a really good advice to, to reflect on that. And clearly, you're really passionate about this, right? So it's really obvious to me that you found meaning in your work. So tell us a little bit about about your background. I've given an introduction at the start of this, but how did you get into this specific line of work, David? And, and where did you get your passion from? Yeah, so from my very first jobs, I used to think that I was going to be a veterinarian until it was sort of a joint decision between me and every biology, physics, and chemistry professor I ever had that maybe I should go into business and psychology instead. Uh, but my very first jobs, therefore, found me literally scooping poop in dog kennels you know, with six dogs. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as I was doing that very early on in my late teenage, early 20s, what I, what I began to realize already was that the people, my coworkers standing right next to me holding their own pooper scooper, while they were picking up feces, I was creating a better environment for the animals so that they could heal better in this veterinary office. You know, so we were doing the same task, but for them, it was about cleaning feces. For me, it was about so much more because I was able to make that connection. My story continued where my first entrepreneurial venture, I owned a small ice cream franchise, an ice cream parlor in Baltimore City. And specifically, my crew members came from uh, the inner city of Baltimore. So I don't know if in the UK you guys are big fans of The Wire, an old HBO show. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So The Wire did a, a pretty good job, an accurate job of of uh, describing some of my employees' lived lives. 
I had one employee who in the span of four or five years working for me in that amount of time, he uh, had two brothers murdered in two separate incidences. One was selling drugs and it was a drug deal gone bad or something. The other one had lifted himself out of that life, but then found himself in the wrong place at the wrong time and was brutally murdered as well. This guy was regularly stopped by the police because he was walking to our ice cream parlor, which was in this um, upper middle class, predominantly white neighborhood. And he was a young black male walking through this neighborhood. And so regularly, the police would stop him for what they would call citizen interviews. I would get like the little note from the police that said he would stop for a citizen interview. So these guys lived um, trauma, you know, uh, drug abuse within their family, uh, physical abuse on them, etc. And what I noticed was at work, maybe because I was naive, maybe I didn't pay enough attention in my business classes, but I didn't know I wasn't supposed to trust a 16-year-old girl from the inner city with a key to my ice cream parlor. Luckily, she didn't know I wasn't supposed to trust her with a key either. And so she rose to that level of trust. And this just happened again and again, where I was including them in marketing decisions. And we would go around and, and volunteer our time and ice cream and, and all of that around the community um, and really contribute to the community. We were doing all of these things. And so one day, a couple months into me being in what I thought was the ice cream business, uh, this one crew member, she was like 16 or 17 at the time, came in and she was looking really down. And I asked her what was going on. And she turned to me and I saw tears in her eyes. I said, whoa, what's, what's happening? She said that her boyfriend, who I knew was in one of the local gangs, that morning she had received a phone call that he had been shot multiple times and left for dead. He was flown to the hospital via helicopter and she didn't know if he was going to make it. So I said to her, you got to go. Like, don't, don't be here. You got to go. And she refused to leave. And I said, seriously, I know money's tight. I'll pay, I'll pay you for the day and I will personally cover your shift, but you've got to go somewhere, be with family, be somewhere where you can think about it or take your mind off it, whatever you need. And she cut me off and said, no, 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 no. I need to be here. I can only be here. This is my happy place. And that moment was life-changing for me. You know, the, the famous Mark Twain quote, the two most important days of your life are the day that you're born and the day you find out why. That, that was the moment that I learned that work should be and could be something so much greater. I had all of these dear friends who were doctors and nurses and lawyers, and they dreaded going to work in the morning. Yet my crew members were finding meaning in scooping ice cream. And it was life-changing to the point that I dedicated my life from that moment on to figure out why. And that's when I went back to school and got my master's in industrial organizational psychology and have now continued on to get my doctorate in business psychology, specifically um, looking at this, why do so many people burn out and specifically in industries where their where their jobs are objectively meaningful? Why do we see more burnout there? It doesn't it doesn't make any sense on the surface.
And, and so that's where I got my start. You, it's a fascinating story. I mean, I'm so glad you shared it with us here. I think the listeners are going to have really enjoyed enjoyed that. And, you know, I hope they all, anyone listening to this, finds a similar profound moment in their lives where, where as you say, where they find their why. Question, though, you, you've mentioned a couple of times the term perspective. Do you think COVID-19 has provided people with more perspective? Are they working from home? They're suddenly seeing more of their children, could be one example, and, and valuing that a little bit more, uh, maybe valuing the additional time saved in non-commuting if they're working from home, maybe valuing their jobs if their jobs were at risk and they've been put on furlough or, you know, fighting to keep it, to keep businesses you know, afloat in, in what has been a very challenging pandemic for, for, for many sectors. Do you think that this pandemic has helped help people find more perspective or do you think it's it's had more of an adverse effect on individuals in relation to to burnout in the world of work? Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, the research as it as it begins to be published about the impact uh, that 2020 has had on our values and our relationship with work. But from my perspective, from what I have seen, I would warn all employers and HR professionals that when we get back to the new normal, there's not going to be anything normal about that. And that is because everybody has been home and had this opportunity to reevaluate what is important in their life. And overwhelmingly, I'm hearing people value more the things that they've been overlooking in pursuit of career success, family and those relationships within their life, some of their hobbies and passions. And so HR and leadership are going to really have to step it up because they're going to have to offer meaning and purpose more than ever at work again. Ironically, work does offer that. On its most basic level, you know, it gives us a sense of control and a uh, vehicle to impact the world in a dramatic way. But it's going to become more important than ever to make that a, a core piece of your work environment and your communication with employees. And I think I think it's going to be really interesting to see how it all parses out. But for all those companies that have furloughed and or downsized. I also think that that people are going to be looking for an exit uh, because those things are not usually taken well, even by the survivors. There's this element of survivor's guilt when somebody stays within an organization and other people are laid off, unless it was done really, really nicely where, where people on their way out are being supported 100% of the way. Then you see a little bit less of an impact on survivor's guilt. Have you ever asked yourself... How can any recruiter understand my HR recruitment challenges? Please don't give up on your hiring challenges just yet. Here at JGA HR Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top human resources talent. We also understand just how costly a poor hire can be. JGA HR Recruitment would like to partner with you to help you overcome your hiring challenges. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. If I had to push you for a prediction now to say, you know, what's the world of work going to look like post-COVID-19, whenever that is, what are the things you're expecting to see? So I think there's going to be a lot of industry change. Uh, I just saw a 
survey the other day. I'm trying to remember the number. I think it was 46%. It was within five points, but uh, I think they said 46% of teachers in America. So these are primary, secondary school teachers in America said that they are looking to change jobs, if not careers. Um, So we're going to see, especially in these places that have been hit really hard with a lot of change and a lot of impact, uh, and very difficult impact, like in education, like in nursing, like in nursing homes, I think you're going to see a lot of people exiting certain industries. And then, uh, you know, from your end with recruiting, what are these organizations going to do? How are they going to step it up to attract new people, you know, into these industries? And I think they're going to have to offer a little bit more than they've offered in the past now that we all know what could happen in another pandemic or or a similar situation. So I think there's going to be a lot of shuffling uh, of the workforce. But I I also think that the best companies out there, the ones that are going to do really well, are going to be the ones that are learning lessons and taking notes here, who are going to be adopting much more telework, who are going to be connecting their, their work a lot more with the people's inner values. I think those are the organizations that are going to stick around for a long time. I totally agree with everything you've just said there. I think one other element in, in, in times of crisis, there are hopefully positives we can find as well. And hopefully in that search for new talent as companies need to, you know, perhaps look a little bit further afield than they have done in the past, I hope. And in line with some of the campaigns we've seen during this pandemic, like the Black Lives Matter campaign, we're going to see businesses really embrace EDI strategies more going forward. I think they're going to need to in order to really attract the best talent available anyway. But I'm hoping yeah. that we're going to see some real improvements, certainly here in the UK, in, in businesses actively or proactively, rather, I should say, um, promoting more diversity and more inclusion in their recruitment strategies. And I read something from yourself, David, where you said that actually diversity is useless without inclusion. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. So post the death of George Floyd and the social change that's happening in response to that and the many other horrible incidences. I think what I fear is that a lot of people are jumping on the diversity bandwagon without understanding the real implications and the real method to make that work for everyone involved. So from my alma mater, there's actually uh, the University of Maryland right here in Maryland where I am. There's a thought leader who came up with this theory called the ASA theory, right? Uh, So this theory is basically, it's attraction, selection, attrition. And what does that mean, attraction, selection, attrition? You will end up hiring the people that you attract. So the way your organization looks right now, you're attracting a certain type of person. And when we're talking about diversity, we're talking about deep level and surface level diversity. It's not just somebody's skin color or or whatnot. It's, It's... what's ingrained in them, what, what their culture, right? You're going to attract a certain, a certain type of person that resembles the people you already have, right? And then if you happen to attract somebody that's a little bit different, you're less likely to select them because you have a track record of selecting people that are like the people already in your organization. But let's say you do select somebody who is diverse to the typical worker within your organization, 
then you have attrition where that person might not feel like they fit in or you might not feel like they fit in and they will leave one way or another. You Either you'll ask them to leave or they'll exit on their own. And so uh, cyclical, like we, we um, uh, it's an iterative process kind of, you know, we, we continue to build the same lack of diversity and homogeneity within our organization without even realizing it. When we focus on diversity and we're like, we need to hit these quotas and we need to get more diverse faces and et cetera. And so we bring all of these people with diverse backgrounds and diversity in all its forms and we bring them all within the organization. And then we don't give them a voice. Instead, we teach them how we think in this organization, how we act within this organization. That is not inclusion. When people come in and feel like they don't have a voice, that's almost worse than not bringing them in to begin with. You need to give people a voice. The point of diversity and why it works for organizations is that inclusion piece, that you get out of the group thing, that you give people a voice and you are able to tap into so much more, so much broader than than a C-suite that everybody looks and thinks the same. And so without that inclusion piece, what does diversity do? It might make you look good, you know, in the media or, or to your customers or, or, or whatever, but your employees uh, probably see right through it. You don't want to bring people in that are diverse to your organization and then and then not give them a voice. Well, actually, I think um, I think you touched upon something that I'm quite, you know, I don't want to say frustrated, I'm quite passionate about. I talk about it a lot in, in, in other mediums and webinars and other bits and pieces, and, and that is... We're certainly seeing in the UK, I don't know if it's the same in the US, two, two potential problems um, which I think relate to, to your piece there in terms of why diversity is useless without inclusion. I mean, number one is most recruiters will rely on typically one place to find talent. That might be indeed, it might be uh, LinkedIn. But of course, if you're only using one source to find your talent, then it's already homogenized to a certain degree because it's a certain type of individual that will go to and use those those platforms. And therefore, you're already, you know, ruling out many other really good individuals that might be more more familiar or more comfortable on other platforms or other mediums. So that's something. The second thing is we're saying in the UK is a lot of fixed term positions in relation to, you know, brands saying, right, we've got to do, be seen to be doing the right thing. So we're going to bring on, you know, an EDI specialist to really help transform our business and our culture and our values and all these things. But we're going to put it on a fixed term basis for six months as if, you can make those cultural shifts in such a short space. So they're not actually, these individuals aren't leaving through their own volition necessarily. It's just that their fixed term contract ends. You know, it's almost like that box has been ticked for a short period. We've seen to be doing something. But I personally don't believe it's possible on a fixed term contract. I think it needs continued investment of time and expertise if you really want to make cultural change. But I'd, I'd love to know, because obviously I'm very siloed to the UK market in particular, but I'd love to know your view on how you're seeing the jobs market in the US and, and whether you're seeing similar kind of trends appearing. Yeah, absolutely. So we're definitely seeing this push for diversity. And we a lot of times are putting one extra seat in the C-suite. And it's like a director of diversity and inclusion or, or whatever whatever each organization titles it. And the greatest, saddest irony is often that is the one seat in the C-suite where the person is black. 
Like <laughs> it's it's so transparent and so transparently misses the point of it all. And, and so, yeah, I think it needs to be an ongoing process. It has to be an on, ongoing process because otherwise you're going to lose it. You know, I sit behind a lot of closed doors where people tell me things that they would never say out in public. And I remember sitting with these executives who explained to me off the record that they've done the thing, they know diversity is good and they believe in it and they believe that it's good for their organization. So they specifically pushed and brought in a bunch of black employees. But at the end of the day, they just don't work out for us. My, you know, I had to lift my jaw up from the floor, you know, but but uh, when they said this, it, it was shocking. But this is what's happening a lot of times behind closed doors that people are saying, OK, yeah, we'll take that diversity box and they don't get it. They don't get it. And instead, it trains them the other way that, oh, no, we were right. Only people that look and think like us work around here. Well, why? Because you have such a hive mind that you're not. You're not keeping an open mind. You're not looking for diverging opinions and perspectives. It's never been clearer than now in 2020 when the entire world shifted in the matter of a couple of weeks, how important it is to have diversity of thought. And I think that diversity does check so many different boxes that it confuses people, that there is a social responsibility there. There is a thing where you want to increase diversity in order to um, be more attractive to your customers. But in the mix, we forget that it's not just good in terms of it's not just the moral and ethical thing to do. It's actually good for your business when you do it right. And doing it right means engaging those people and listening to their voices. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Well, although we could, we could definitely talk for hours, I think, around, um, you know, meaningful work, around burnout and certainly around diversity and inclusion. I want to finish with this question for me, David, because it's relevant to, of course, your, your PhD studies. Where I'd like to know where you are with your study. So at the minute, if you're able to, and I appreciate you've probably got a 100,000 word dissertation on this, but if you could surmise the interaction between meaningful work and burnout in a, in a, in a way that allows the listener to go, I get it, and I'm now going to go and do something about it, what would you say? Right. So it's this piece. Why does why is it that meaningful work tends to increase burnout? So when you look at objectively meaningful jobs, uh, you see higher levels of burnout. So when when you look at that, it becomes clear that there's something going on in, in terms of how we're defining burnout is burnout correlating with meaningful work because demand is not what we what we have traditionally thought of it as. And instead, demand is the amount of distraction from the mission. In other words, when we go in and we're not expecting a whole lot, you know, from somebody, um, we're not expecting a whole lot from the position. We're just here for the paycheck. You're you're not going to be let down. Whatever whatever work they send is going to be is going to be your work. But when you're going in to the work environment, like primed to make a difference, and suddenly that bubble is burst. That's often where we see burnout, which, by the way, also correlates with age. People burn out way more often in their early career and their younger years. Why? Perhaps it's because in that moment, they're still altruistic 
and think they can have an impact and make an impact on the, on the environment. And then we teach them that they can't. So if that turns out to be true, then the implications for everyone is that we need to align people with the meaning in their work, and we need to make sure that they don't lose that. We need to show them how even the more mundane tasks of the job are connected with the meaningfulness of their work. As you said, it's not about picking up poop. It's about making a better home for the dogs. Well said. There you go. That came from you. Listen, David, it's been an absolute pleasure. Of course, if anyone's listening to this and want to find out more about David's work, I highly recommend you visit his website, which is illuminatepmc.com. I will put a link in the episode notes. Is there any other links or any other social platforms, David, that I can uh, direct listeners to? Yeah. So if anybody wants to grab um, my FTF burnout proof culture model, um, I could definitely get you the link for that. And if you put that in the show notes too, they can click there and, uh, and see what that's all about. Fantastic. Well, I'll make that available as well. So definitely check out the episode notes for both uh, the, web- the website to illuminatepmc.com and also that model as well. And of course, if you are an HR or L&D professional listening to this podcast and you've got an HR related vacancy that you would like some specialist HR recruitment support with, please do get in touch with me. I would love to help show you what a great HR recruitment experience can feel like. You can catch me at nick at jgarecruitment.com or give me a call 01727-800-377. That just leaves me to say thank you, David Charles, so much for joining me today on the HRLND podcast. Thank you, listeners, for checking in once more. And I look forward to bringing you all the next episode of the HRLND podcast real soon. Take care of yourselves and each other. Till next time. Thank you so much for tuning into the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO of JGA Recruitment Specialist HR Recruiters. If you need any help with the current HR or L&D vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.